Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Well, I know that every week we say, please keep your Bibles open so as we go through uh, this passage. But I really do feel that that's especially important this evening. Johnny did a great job of reading carefully for us um, as we've gone through 1 John, sometimes his language is quite hard for us to take in on first, uh, first hearing, and it will really help you to be able to look at it as we uh, go through um, this time. Let me pray, though, as um, we begin. Our Father, you have uh, authored your word through the Apostle by the Holy Spirit's power and inspiration. And we know that that same spirit is present here in us and with us this evening. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, please would you open our minds and our hearts to understand the scriptures. And please, Lord God, would you not just help us to understand, but change our hearts and therefore our lives, that we might please you, that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, back in the 70s, Coca-Cola announced a new advertising campaign and slogan. It carried on all the way through into the 2000s, and some of you may remember it just about. Uh, Coke, it's the real thing. Anyone remember that? 
One or two older people will remember that, thank you. Um, the reason that they did it, of course, was because there were lots of other brands of cola uh, that were being released, and they all claimed to taste better. Coca-Cola wanted to remind everyone that they were the original, that there were no substitutes. You want the real thing? Buy Coca-Cola. And it was, of course, very successful, and they still have about 50% of uh, the market share. Well, John's first letter has been proclaiming the very same thing to us about the Lord Jesus. John wants us to be assured in our faith, to be confident that Jesus, the Jesus that the apostles preached, is very much the real thing. And he's writing because the church that he writes to has begun to doubt that. They aren't sure that they're on the right track anymore. And the reason for that is because a group of people have left the church and they've started up their own church with their own version of Christianity, which they claim is superior. And we heard about them first of all in John chapter 2, at verse 19, just at the top of the left-hand column, if you've got the church Bible on the page, on the page opposite, 2 verse 19, they, these people, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. Now, as the letter's gone on, we've learned more about these folk. These people claim that they're the real deal, but they've abandoned the apostles' teaching about Jesus. They claim that they have some superior knowledge about Jesus, but they deny that he really died on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. And they feel able to do that because they believe that they don't really need a sacrifice for sins because they claim to be without sin themselves. All the while, of course, ignoring God's commandments. They claim that they are the family of God, the real family of God, and yet they hate those who have stayed in the true church. That's the situation. And of course, all of that has rocked the confidence of the true church of God to which John writes. They're wondering whether they've got it wrong. And they're starting to wonder, perhaps we should go and join this new group. That's the situation John writes into. And we're going to need to keep that in mind as we come into chapter 5. Because in chapter 5, John is going to pull together all the threads of his letter to grant new assurance to his readers that the Jesus that they've placed their faith in is indeed the real thing. Now, as usual, an outline of where we're going is on the back of the service sheet. Uh, there's two questions that are answered and then applied to us. How can we know that we're a child of God? Verse 1 to 5. How can we know that we have eternal life? Verse 6 to 13. And then verse 14 to 21. Uh, John applies those truths to our lives. So we're we going. So here we go. Verse 1 to 5. How can we know, how can we be certain, confident, assured that we are a child of God? Let me read verse 1. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, because of the context into which John is writing, this is a sentence that's designed both to include and to exclude. Now, sometimes you'll hear someone say, well, look, we're all children of God, aren't we? Well, no, not according to the Apostle John. Not everyone is a child of God. If you want to know for sure whether you are a child of God, ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And when John speaks of the Christ here, he means the Jesus Christ that the apostles proclaimed. He's already told us this in the letter right at the beginning, and then several times on the way through. Right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, he said that, he's, that this Jesus is the one whom John saw and heard and whose hands and feet he touched after his resurrection. Later, he says that this Christ is the Apostles' Christ. He's the man of Jesus of Nazareth, who is God the Son come in the flesh. That's chapter 4, verse 2. And not only has he come in the flesh, but that he is the Christ who was crucified in the flesh as a propitiation for our sins, chapter 4, verse 10. That Christ, if you believe in him, if you have faith in him, you can be confident that you have indeed been born of God, that you are one of God's children. Your faith in the Apostles' Christ is testimony to that truth. And those others, those who would say that they believe in Jesus, but who do not believe Jesus is the Christ that the apostles proclaimed, well, those people, they're excluded from the family. They have not been born of God. So that's his opening statement, but he wants to build our assurance, and so he continues. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So not only do you believe in Jesus Christ, but you also love God and you love your brothers and sisters. You can know you're in the family because you love the family. You love God as your Father, and you love one another as brothers and sisters. And again, this should assure you that you have indeed been born of God. Again, those others who left, well, they do not love you. They don't love God's children. And so they show that they're not in the family. Now, one more thing, says John, end of, in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Your obedience marks you out as children of God. Not sinlessness, that's, that's not possible while we're in this body, not sinlessness, but your desire and your efforts to obey your heavenly Father by keeping his commandments, by loving your neighbour, by putting into practice the teaching of God's word. Again, like these, unlike these other folks who disregard God's word and, and hate those who keep it. 
This should assure you. See what he's doing? He's building the case for us. Don't be shaken by those who claim to know Christ, but who reject the apostles' teaching about Jesus and the cross. Don't be shaken by those who don't love true believers. Don't be shaken by those who disregard God's word when it comes to what's right and what's wrong. Don't start to doubt because of people or churches like that. And be assured that we are authentic by our faith in Christ crucified and by our love for God and and love for one another and by our desires to live the lives that are pleasing to God in obeying his commandments. Don't be shaken. You are born of God. You show it by your faith expressed in love and obedience. And as such, verse 4, you will overcome the world. You will overcome the world and indeed the worldly church. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how can we know for sure that we're a child of God? Well, faith in the apostles Jesus, Jesus of the Gospels, and faith expressed in love and obedience. That's question one. Now question two, verse six to 13. If we know now that we're children of God, how can we know that we have eternal life? He says the answer to that is the spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, this is what I like to call the tricky bit, okay? And so you need to kind of hang in there uh, with me. So Jewish law required two or three witnesses to make a case. You may be familiar with that principle. Now, one witness could, of course, still be correct. But corroboration was required for the court to be certain about the truth of the matter. And that's what's going on in verse 6 to 13. John wants to assure us that the Jesus in whom we've placed our faith is the real thing, the true Jesus, and as a result that we can therefore be certain that we have eternal life in him. And so there are three witness testimonies for us to examine the spirit, the water, and the blood. But what on earth is he talking about when he says the spirit, water, and blood? As you can imagine, the commentators have something of a field day when it comes to uh, these verses. Uh, Let me read them to you, and then I'm just going to tell you what I think uh, they say. So verse 6 to 8, speaking about the Lord. uh, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, it's the first witness, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree, three witnesses who agree to make the case. So here's here's my take and what I think is um, going on. So the water refers to the baptism of Jesus. 
when he was declared to be God's son. Remember that voice came from heaven and declared that this is my beloved son. And of course where he was empowered by the spirit for his work, for his ministry. That's the water. The blood refers to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross where he completed his work. And the third testimony is that of the spirit. I think here that the internal testimony of the spirit in the heart of the believer. These three all corroborate together. They confirm each other and they confirm to us that Jesus is the Christ. That's the explanation. Now, why is John talking like this? Well, again, we need to remember the circumstance that he's speaking into. It seems like the group that left the church are water-only believers. That's verse 6. They believe in the water only. That is, they believe in the empowerment of Jesus Christ. They're happy to accept his miracles and his exorcisms and perhaps even some of his preaching. And of course, that witness is a true witness. Jesus did do those things and they did reveal that he is God's Christ. But these people, they're water only. They do not accept the blood. They don't believe in the cross. They don't believe in his work of atonement for sins. We talked about that last week. See, to them, the Christ could not possibly have done that. It was a repulsive idea to them that God's Christ might die under God's wrath for our sins. But John says, look, both these events are testifying to us that God's son Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the suffering servant. He is God's king who gives life to his people. And if you want a third witness, the spirit living in us testifies to us, assuring us of the truth of these things. We can be assured that we have the right Jesus because we have the witness testimony of these three, the water, the blood, and the spirit, by which God himself testifies the truth to us. To deny any of those three is to call God a liar, verse 9 and 10. Now, why is John at pains to make this clear to us? Well, the reason that we need to be sure that we have the right Jesus is found in verse 11 to 13. Assurance that we have the true Jesus brings assurance that we do indeed have eternal life. So the case has been made, the witnesses have spoken, here's the truth of the matter, verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Couldn't be more clear-cut, could it? If you have the Son, if your faith is placed in the authentic Jesus that the apostles present to us in the Gospels, who was baptized, who lived by the Spirit, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have him, then you have life. 
If you do not have this son, if you do not accept him, then you do not have life. And John is in no doubt about you who have remained true. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All the way through this series, if you've been here from chapter 1 through to chapter 5, we've told you that verse 13 is a really key verse in the book. It's John's purpose in writing. So you've had a lot to contend with, church. You've had lots of people saying that you're wrong about Jesus and wrong about the Christian faith and wrong about what's right and wrong even. But do not be shaken. The Jesus of the apostles, the Jesus in the Gospels, is the real thing. The true Jesus who lived and died for you and by your faith in him, you are absolutely safe and secure for eternity. As the old song we began our service with says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. What's the next line? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We have Jesus now, the real Jesus now, and therefore we are tasting eternity. Eternity, eternal life is assured for us. On to our final section, verse 14 to 21. As we come into land, John is going to apply the assurance that we found into our lives as Christian believers. And you'll notice, I think, as it's read through, that the letter uh, finishes with these three uh, we know statements, three things that we know. Uh, One is at the end of the first application, that's there in verse 18, and then there's one in verse 19, and then one in verse 20 to 21. So here then is the first application uh, of this new assurance in verse 14 uh, to 18. I think perhaps this is a surprising one. It surprised me uh, when I, I came to it. See, John wants us not only to be confident that God will accept us on the final day, but also confident that he accepts us today. Because of our faith in Christ, we can know that he will hear and answer our prayers as we pray according to his will. This is a really wonderful truth. Prayer isn't complicated. There isn't a set pattern of words There's no few religious acts for us to do in order to persuade God to listen to us. It is simply a child speaking to a good father. We can simply lay our request before God and say, your will be done. Verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. And then notice that verse 16 is connected to this thought. There's another he shall ask embedded in the verse, halfway through the verse of verse 16. So verse 16 to 18, John isn't just making a general point about confidence in prayer. 
there's a particular kind of prayer that he wants us to pray and, and that he has in mind. So let's read on, verse 16 to 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, again pray, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, now here's tricky bit part two. As you will guess, there are many uh, PhDs written on the sin that leads to death and what that means. And the key to the answer, of course, almost as always, is the context of the letter. So what is it that leads to death in 1 John? Well, it's deliberately turning your back on the Jesus of the apostles. That's what leads to death. It's right there in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John's had some really strong terms in the letter for those who have left. He's called them antichrists. He's called them false prophets. He's called them children of the devil. These people have abandoned the faith and they are proclaiming a false Jesus. And he's not saying here that you can't pray for those people. He's just saying, look, I'm not telling you to pray for those people. So he's recognizing the, hard, the really extreme hardness of heart that he sees in that group who have already abandoned the true Jesus. He's not telling us to pray for people like that. Who he really wants us to pray for is the believer, the brother or sister, who's still in the church community, but who is sinning. And this might be, of course, the brother or sister who's wavering and who's thinking of leaving the church to join these folk. Or it may simply be any brother or sister who is battling sin in their life. You'll pray for that person, John says, and you can be confident that God will hear your prayer and answer your prayer, for it is God's will that they are brought to repentance. And this confidence is stated boldly in verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, that's the Lord Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. That verse is very Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Jesus will lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now again here, this isn't perfectionism, it's repentance. They will not keep on sinning. They won't carry on sinning. They won't continue to sin unrepentantly. Because they are born of God, they will turn from their sin. Their sin will not lead to death, for Jesus will keep them for himself. The evil one's got no chance of hooking them because Jesus is protecting them. So we're to pray, and we're to pray confidently for their repentance. They're born of God. Jesus is looking after them. He's got hold of them. So you pray for them that they will turn from their sin. And they will. I wonder if, just as 
you've been thinking about that, there may be someone who comes to mind who you need to pray for tonight. A brother or sister who you know is doing stuff that is against God's will, that's not keeping God's commandments, that's breaking them, that's sinning in a particular way, and you know now that actually what you need to do is to start praying for them. Pray for their repentance, and John says God will hear and he will answer your prayers. He will bring them back. That's the first application. Second application, this gives us verse 19. It gives us confidence to stand firm when enemies oppose us. So verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So here's a really another candid certainty from John, isn't it? It's a straightforward statement and it follows on from the last statement. One commentator puts it like this. Satan cannot lay a hand on the child of God, but the whole world lies in his arms. John says, look, believer, know that there are only two teams, those who belong to God and those who are in the power of the devil. And again, think of the context of the letter. The the claim is out there that there is an alternative Christian option, a third team, if you like. But there is no third team, says John. The world and the worldly church have the same master. And that should sadden us, but it should also make us confident to stand firm when enemies oppose us. And those enemies will sometimes claim the name Christian for themselves. We're not to be surprised by that. And we're not to be shaken, for we cling to the true Jesus of the apostles. And so we know that we are from God, that we belong to him. That's the second application. Third one, this leads to the final one. We gain confidence to stick with the true Jesus to the end. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, when I first read 1 John, um, as I was preparing way back earlier on in the series, I thought, what is verse 21 doing? It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? He hasn't used the word idol for the whole letter, not once. John probably lived in Ephesus when he wrote this. He'd have been surrounded by temples and idol statues. And of course, he'd want his readers to avoid turning to uh, worship these pagan deities. But that's not what this letter's been about at all, has it? What has it been about? That a group of people have left the church and the apostles' teaching and they've set up a new church based on a false Jesus. See, he's calling what they have done idolatry. It's as bad and as blasphemous as setting up an idol to Zeus and sacrificing to it. Now, why does he warn us 
Why is this the final note that he leaves us with? Well, because he knows that in many ways, a part of each of us would really quite like a false Jesus, to create a Jesus in our own image. See, we'd like a Jesus who set the bar for keeping his commandments a little lower. We'd like a Jesus who simply affirmed us in our life choices and didn't challenge our sinful ways. We'd quite like a Jesus who didn't speak about God's wrath against us or about judgment or hell. There's something in us that would quite like a Jesus who didn't go to the cross because the cross exposes just how sinful we really are. See, that's what these people deny, and it's idolatry, says John. We must keep ourselves from it. We must guard our hearts, recognize that there's something in our hearts that we'd really like to create a Jesus that fit in with what we think and the way we want to live. But let me read verse 20 again. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Stick with the true Jesus to the end. The Jesus that John and the apostles preached. The Jesus who gave his life for you at the cross. We have the real thing. Do not buy another one. You know him. Do not depart from him, for he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord, as we pray, we do so with new confidence that if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And we know that we have the requests that we have asked of you. And so, Lord, we pray for any tonight who are wrestling with sin. Oh God, we ask, cause them tonight to turn in repentance, that they may put away their sin and practice righteousness that they may regain the assurance that comes from knowing that they are your child. Father, we thank you that you have promised to keep hold of your children, even when we sin against you and against each other. We pray too, Lord God, that you would grant us fresh assurance that we do indeed belong to you, that in the face of the world, And in the face of the worldly church which rails against your word, that we might be confident tonight that we know him who is true, that we're in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Father, keep us walking in the truth and keep us from idols. In Jesus' name, amen.